Okay, so I am here with Megan Abbott, who is most recently the author of The End of Everything. Megan, how are you doing? Very good. Thanks for I having me. I needed a dramatic emphasis for that very yes, peremptory it's very, title. It's very subtle. <laughs> You've written two books off of real crimes. The song is you, deriving, of course, from Gene Spangler, and Bury Me Deep from Winnie Ruth Judd. I know that Queenpin started off from a short story. To what extent, just to start things off here, do you need to have some pre-existing narrative framework with which to work on a novel. I mean, is it more difficult in this case to devise a wholly fictitious crime? How do you how do you associate or build off of things like this? Almost always it's based on a real life crime. Though I sometimes those song as you and bury me deep, I didn't sort of fictionalize it at all. Yeah. You know, or I saw well actually I fictionalized a lot, but you know, I didn't sort of hide it. But um, in all my books there was some kernel that came from a true crime. I think it's that those were the first books I really read and I read them sort of um, obsessively so even this one which would seem to have no specific variation sort of based on a documentary I saw 15 years ago about really? a missing girl and I, I, I can't find it. it was on PBS I but it always stuck with me there were certain family dynamics about it that sort of um, haunted me and, and the fact that I remembered it 15 years later um, which case specifically it was an obscure case um, and it was um, it was sort of it was really a study of a family um, who's an obscure the, case like what? Yeah. <laughs> Unless you're going to remain needlessly obscure. I don't even remember. <laughs> That's right. Well, Come I can't on. tell you're, you're, you're but perhaps when they redact it. No. Um, <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even remember the name. Huh. Um, it was, um, but it was suburban and it was, it was a, with a, there was a family with two sisters and yeah. in the, there was an older, much more glamorous sister and a younger, very shy, quiet sister and she disappeared and clearly she was the sort of forgotten one in the family until she disappeared and then she sort of became the center in her absence and yeah. so that fascinated me. Well, this sort of answers my question. I mean, if you can't remember the name of this particular <laughs> yeah. girl, it seems to me that you need to filter some real life or tangible case through, I suppose, blurring it so that it actually becomes tangible fiction is it safe to say or? yeah no I think that's absolutely true in the case of this this book I think if I hadn't um, I had no I tried to write it years ago and yeah. I couldn't find a way in and it wasn't until I sort of attached it to my own Midwestern suburban yeah. upbringing so it, which gave me a sense of place about it but it sort of morphed into something else and then it took on a life of its own from there yeah well it is interesting I should ask while we're on this subject why all of your books tend to be written in locations that you don't actually live in anymore. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's quite interesting. In this case, too, this is the first present-day venture, and right. yet, even so, ain't in Queens. Right, exactly. No, I can't even imagine. I mean, the, the purpose of writing for me is purely fantasy. It's yeah. sort of an escape. So even it was hard even to imagine writing a place I had lived in, um, and even though I haven't lived in it for years. Um, there's something about it that has to be fantastical. So even the suburbs, the Midwestern suburbs in this book, are clearly some kind of you know shot through with nostalgia version of those the, you know the real time and place. Um, so that way it, it too became a fantasy uh, yeah. exercise for me. Is fantasy the best method for you to? really tap into the darkness that is often contained in your work? I mean, why not just confront it face on? I'll, I'll, I'll right, follow yeah. this up with specific examples later, but right. you know, just to start off here. Yeah, I, I guess in sort of, sort of being um, always sort of, I generally consider myself a sunny person. Yeah, <laughs> sort yes. of, You know, Midwestern gal, and, uh, and, and that sort of part of my brain, I don't really permit it 
full reign in other areas of my life or something, you know. I, uh, it's sort of this sort of special corner or something yeah. that I um, don't want to infest the other corners or something. You feel the need to compartmentalize <laughs> yes, things. Yes, that's a much better way to put it. Yes, exactly. So, so there are advantages in remaining blinkered to yes. sustaining this kind of thing. Is it, does it extend beyond fiction? Is, are there other aspects of your life where maintaining a blinkered perspective is an advantage in confronting the truth? Uh, yes. <laughs> no, especially in my personal life. But, but that's, that's a whole separate issue. No, it's true. But my, 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 training, my training was in academia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for instance, that sort of critical analysis that I, I was trained to do, I cannot apply to my own work or yeah. to books I love yeah. even. I have to be very careful because it will sort of destroy them. So I want to keep those blinkers on too. If it's a writer I really love, it's very hard for me to write about them because then I will have to sort of, you know, it sort of becomes the autopsy yes. experience. And then, you know, when, you know, once the autopsy's over, there's just a ripped up corpse on the table. You can only dismember or deconstruct something if it's a writer you hate or, or it's problematic or, or no, how, do you, how, do you, no. how do you deal with books in this, in this matter? I guess if they sort of speak to that dark corner of my brain or my heart maybe, yeah. even then it becomes tied up with all this other stuff and I, yeah. I don't have the distance from it. Um, so, so I, I, yeah, I can't sort of, I don't want to do it. I mean, maybe I could, and I've tried, but it's always been hard. I always have to sort of, um, I, I wrote a lot on Raymond Chandler, um, yeah. and, and that was before I, I sort of came to love him while writing about him, but now to write about him critically would be much harder because he is, he has become mine, you know? Yes. So, so it seems to me that after a certain point, there's just no way you could write about a writer. Um, how then do you really absorb a writer who you really love into your fiction? I mean, is it through this blinkered perspective that you were describing earlier? Or? Yeah, I think it's sort of um, almost a sensate level. I'm a big fan of, obviously, James Elroy. Sort of the stamp is all over my book, and sort of his cadences sort of get in my head. And, and my writing, st my prose style, I think, is quite different from his. Yes. And uh, But there's something about the, the beats of it that, for me, I've sort of, from reading him obsessively, I, I, I feel them when I write, you know. Yes. Um, so, um, and I think it's true with the, uh, Daniel Woodrell is a big favorite of mine. It's the same thing. When I was writing this book, um, um, the way he, he sort of, you know, sort of, you know, basically shatters traditional language in certain ways felt very freeing and sort of inspiring. So, so to write about him would be mean I would have to sort of pull those sentences into parts and look at how he did it and yeah. it would sort of take all the magic away, I think. Uh -huh. But, but, and I'll get to your prose specifically, yeah. but your sentences definitely are worked. They definitely do have a rhythmic balance. And so where does the origin point come for, I suppose, this balance between an intuitive grasp for language versus a highly rigorous, perhaps needlessly over-analytical approach for tearing apart a sentence and working it down to its base components and the like? How do you deal with this balance? I... I it's funny, I don't read my books after I write, write them yeah. ever again. Yeah. And I have trouble even when I have to do a reading and I read them and I start to sort of... I know that I do the thing that I would do with a with a book I was writing a critical piece on, which is I look at rep, repetitions. Which would be, I have a lot of word repetitions. It's yes, sort of I something know. I cannot break myself of, and uh, and so I would sort of notice things that recur, which is one of the ways I love to look at things critically. You know, you sort of finding the it's not just the themes, but sort of the obsessions. Um, I, I tend to like writers that sort of have, I mean, they say all writers really have one story that they keep telling over and over again, but especially the writers I like seem yeah. to. Um, so I would start to sort of um, 
you know, pull those things out and then how could I ever use those words again or something. They would have this sort of um, clinical meaning to me now. Yeah. There's, I went to see um, one of my favorite filmmakers, Paul Schrader, talk yeah. at Lincoln Center and they asked him about it because he's a critic and a filmmaker and he was famous first as a critic and he, he did this sort of, I'm, I'm going to totally botch the metaphor he used, but it was something about how the artist side of him is, you know, um, in the delivery room giving birth to the baby and the, and the critic side of him is like the doctor and if you let the yeah. doctor in the room, the baby will die. Sure, <laughs> you sure, know? Sure, sure, And I think that, you know, he's, he, you know, he tries to keep them in, in separate rooms. I mean, also, I guess the other fear is that your critical side would say, well, you know, this isn't really great. <laughs> you know? yeah. And there's that fear too. You have to keep that big hairy monster in the yeah, closet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, well, I mean, while we're on the subject, there's a number of things here I have to follow up on. Uh, agonizing over words or agonizing over metaphors. Like, for example, at the risk of causing further agony, in the end of everything, you have fanned out textbooks and fanned out records twice. Now, now it works in a, in a repetitive mode, but on the other hand, based off of what you just said, I'm yeah. thinking, oh, well, Megan probably is going to be agonizing over, oh, shit, I, <laughs> I, I've had objects fanned out a second time. Yeah. Um, what do you do to, to, to combat such, such, a, such a dilemma? You know, it is funny. There's certain, certain. I try to tell myself that it's sort of part of this sort of, I guess, word cloud I yeah. have. And I, I, I did this interview um, once, and um, the and the the guy interviewing me said that I had used the word "doomy" in all my books. And I don't "doomy." First of all, "doomy" is not a word. "Doomy," <laughs> I mean, not "do me," but "doomy." Do D O O M Y. Yeah. "Doomy" is a set of words, but it's not one I generally use. "Doomy" is, is a yeah. word I'm, I'm familiar with in other yes, other situations. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, but. Um, it is sort of, I, I hear it sort of fall to the front of my head all the time. And I, I actually, now that you say found out, I'm sure that's absolutely true. There are certain, especially if they're associated to me with a little image. Um, and at a certain point, if I'm really aware of them, then I, I can kind of let them go. So it's good for me in some ways to become aware of them yeah. because then I'm, I'm done with it. And I, I think I'm done with Doomy. Fanned out, maybe not so much. <laughs> or Folsom, which appears, I think, three times in this book. Yeah, yeah. Which, and also is not in, I think, is not in the other four books. I, I, yeah. I'm, that must be a new new one I added. Another new one I added lately has been Candescent, which, yes. <laughs> which yes. I yes. use a lot now. I think it's partially, I have a little a little. OCD, you know, I like words when I write. I actually the editing process is a lot of cutting out even as much, many repetitions in terms of sentence structure repetitions that I have. There's a lot more in my first draft, and I actually have to sort of whittle it down. But the way I, in my head, it works is that most of my books have a sort of confessional narration in some way, yeah. and so there's so they're sort of meant like the writers I love, like James Kane, etc. They're supposed to be like a whisper in your ear, yeah. which often is filled with repetitions and weird sort of punctuations and very sort of um, almost like a heartbeat ba-bump 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 so I, I tell myself that that's you know that the, the repetitions sort of work for that feel yeah well I mean also on this subject I should point out novel number five you're still using similes now this could very well just be the fact of the genre or the type of novel that you're writing but a lot of writers 
become extremely resistant to similes by their third, fourth, or even fifth novels. I, I'm curious about your relationship to similes here. Yeah, I didn't even realize. Yeah, yeah I think perhaps it's the Chandler love. Because of course, yes. there's no... Well, of no, course, of yeah. course, he was the master. Yeah. Exactly. The, the uh, one exactly. simile of his I really love is like a, like a spider on an angel food cake. Oh, which, yeah, or there was the, yeah. uh, a blonde to make a... Well, this isn't a simile, but a blonde to make a bishop uh, kick a hole through a uh, yeah. glass window, which is, uh, you know... Or as, as <laughs> subtle as a uh, spider on an angel food yeah, cake. That's what right. it was. Yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. yes, and that yes. one too. Oh, that's yeah, perfect. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think. Um, uh, I yeah, I think so. Something of. Um, I think it's probably. I was such a reader. Uh, you know, everybody who's a writer was a reader, but I never thought that I would be a writer, and so my world was books, and so the noise in my head is always books. So there's just sort of this swarm up there, and I never really sort of separated it out. Just sort of, you know, it's just sort of writing. It's just sort of. Influence, influence, influence. I'm unafraid of influence. <laughs> a compartmentalized swarm? <laughs> Describe <Yeah>. this. <laughs> well, well, no, I think this, yeah, the part that, the, the yeah, the swarm is probably the in that same sort of dark corner. So now it's, now the picture's sounding a little, little disturbing there in that dark corner, sort of, yeah. uh, but, uh, um, I guess sort of I let anything anything goes in there or something like that um, and I try you know the editing a lot is controlling that and my editor controls it too um, but um, but I try not to, to be the overly um, overly careful in the at least the first rendition you know and I don't I don't know I often I'll find I, I find that I uh, and with the simile is a good example this is very big and a little heavier or or dense or it's a little um, hyperbolic and I always like that and I sort of and for a long time you know I when I first started writing I was really a Raymond I am a Raymond Carver fan but I really sort of resisted that impulse in myself and now I sort of you know what I my head is hyperbolic I'm hyperbolic so you know I'm just gonna go for it <laughs> well hyperbolic prose is sometimes necessary to get at a fundamental truth, especially when you're dealing with very severe emotions as well. Right, yeah. right, yeah. I think that's, yeah, so the melodrama has always yeah. been a big influence on yes. me, so. Well, while we're on the subject of editors, I'm wondering what the difference is with, say, working with Reagan Arthur versus Denise, Denise mm -hmm. Roy. Right. Um, they were, they're both very strong editorial presences, which is what I need. I have a, I, uh, I really lose access to the book after I turn it in, yeah. and I guess that's true of all writers, yeah. you know. Um, and I and it becomes this sort of um, set in stone, you know, this sort of, you know, this everything is in this place. I cannot touch it, or it will all fall apart. You know, it becomes this sort of delicate house of cards. And yeah. and so I, to have a editor that would sort of have a, a dainty touch, it, I then the cards would fall, but I could not put them back up again. But they are both editors who are really strong sense of story yeah. and um, and are, I think both character driven editors so it's a big help for me and, and sort of keeps me on, on track. Dainty Touch, elaborate on this how dainty does it need to be I mean obviously yeah. we're not talking severe line editing Right, no I get that too yeah, wait, You get that yeah. in the copy editing stage yeah. certainly Yes yeah, and but, I get that, my, my yeah. agent who was an editor um, was a, a, a is a of Max Perkins style cop, you know, line editor, and maybe Gordon Lish would be the better example. So Gordon Lish would be yeah, the better. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, so he, uh, um, 
so I get that too, and and my work has been the the better for it. Um, the more I, I find it very unpleasant revising, to be honest. Um, yeah. So, um, if I had an editor who just said, you know, um, it's just this just needs a little sketching out yeah. further, things need to move faster here, then then I wouldn't know what to do with it. I sort of, you know, I sort of need a really a really you know I need the five page editorial letter and I yes. need the you know I need that sort of you know you need bolster. to fix the problem yourself by hey this scene is not happening because of X Y and Z and then yeah. you can fix it but at the same time you are dealing with the deconstructive line editing yes. so yes. how do you maintain the life of the manuscript right. if you're dealing with uh, the, yeah. the corpse essentially or the body yeah. being fl the guts flailing in the uh, <laughs> that is the most delicate. Though. To be honest, I would take a 20-page editorial letter over line and line edit. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Usually, I'll do the line edits at the very end yeah. in the hope that the other edits will nullify the like the yes. line edits no longer matter anymore. Because to me, there's nothing more painful. I, speaking of Gordon Lish, when I remember seeing that New York Times magazine or was it New Yorker where they showed the pages of his Raymond oh, yes. Carver cuts, oh, yes. and it was oh god, the Carver Lish oh, thing is yeah. so. And to just see... Laden with problems, in, yeah. In every way. I mean, yeah. you know, and it's painful when you know his stories through the Lish edits yeah. and you love them. And then you think, what do I love here? And yeah. then, you know, and, uh, but seeing the and their painful correspondence, yeah. you know, and I just, you know, it's it so... It's the New Yorker, yeah, yeah. that published the two. Yeah, yeah, he's sort of, you know, he's heartbroken to say, yeah. that, you know, you, you know, essentially, I can't bear to do these anymore, yeah. you know. Uh, I totally understand that because that is, I think that's exactly right. That's the part where the danger of the dissector coming yeah. out, the the um, coroner coming out in me is at most at risk. You know, I start to want to cut everything out. De Denise <laughs> and Reagan have not been Gordon Lish like it. No, <laughs> no, no. To clarify, all. exactly. No, no, definitely not. They are um, what they both have the style of. Um, um, you know, you know. Like this is the scene where I feel like the, I don't know what's at stake here, or. Um, you know, we need some mo momentum here, things like that, which is just what you, you know, and then you read it and then you think, yes, what, you know, I don't know, you know, it's such a mysterious process, the yeah, revising. Yeah, yeah. You would turn to it and you think, what, what was I doing, you know? Sure. So their guidance has been big help. To, to jump off the repetition which you had mentioned, uh, the surname Verver in this book suggests murmur, but it also mimics the many repetitions throughout your work. Um, I wanted to actually offer a few examples so oh, people yes. know what the hell we're talking about. Yes, yes. Um, in Bury Me Deep, he rolled those girls up in the carpet. He rolled them up in the carpet like Cleopatra. Um, so we have he rolled in two separate sentences. In the end of everything, and I thought of Bobby in the front seat of his parents' cars, his forced green varsity jacket with a chenille seam. I thought of him, hunched there, gazing up at Dusty's bedroom window. It's frothy curtains, Dusty's frothy girlness. So we have, like he rolled, you have, I thought of, repeated, uh, but also frothy, repeated as well. Um, since your work is very much about exploring the dualities of life, I'm wondering if the beginning of a sentence or, or a word that is repeated in a sentence allows you to, I suppose, grasp that element within these characters, that language itself becomes the mechanism with which you explore some of these duplicities. Thanks. I, yeah, I think that most of my characters have been very sort of inexpressive people yeah. in general. They don't understand themselves. A 13-year-old couldn't understand herself very well, yeah. for instance, but bury me deep. 
it's a woman who who doesn't understand her own desire. She's completely had no experience of desire before this, so she doesn't know. And I think, you know, and some of the characters have been they're all either repressed or they're violent criminals, and so yeah. they have. They, you know, language really in many ways eludes them. So there's something I think about the, the more the repetition. They're sort of circling in on something and trying to understand something, yeah. which is probably what I'm doing when I'm writing it too. Um, and it, it's sort of it's sort of almost it becomes the expo- an exploratory process. Yeah. You know, if I keep saying this word, I can, you know, I'll get closer to the center and see what it really means. You know. In, in other words, you need to say a word like he rolled in order to understand that it's not just about rolling a body up, it's about something else, or that um, maybe it's a way for you to uh, to really, I guess, flesh out the scene in a way that you couldn't just with a straight declarative sentence? Right, yeah, there's something about, I guess, emphasis yeah. or something, um, in, in, and it's, or something that I want, so there's like a stutter or a pause yeah. on, it's almost, yeah. it feels like a stutter sometimes in my head, you know, like, this is a moment, we have to stay here for a second or something, or I have to stay here for a second when I'm writing it, so it sort of loops back on itself. Yeah. Last night I did a reading of the end of everything, and I, there was this, you know, sometimes when you read that loud and you think, oh my gosh, this sounds crazy because I'm repeating it, but, you know, I almost cut the line, but it was literally a line where I repeated the same phrase back to back twice, yeah. you know, um, and, you know, on the page, it's, you, those, you can get away with that, and I thought, well, I wonder how it'll be to read out loud, you know, but, but then I realized that I do hear a voice in my head when I write, and actually sometimes it works even better out loud because we do repeat things when we talk, and Absolutely. we do sort of push words, and, and they have, you know, you push a different word in the sentence, and it has a different feel, and... Well, how much of this do you read out loud, because if this is a, a problem, I mean, maybe... It, it, or maybe it's not a problem, it just is, where yeah. you're dealing with sentences that are really best read as opposed to best spoken. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it, are you moving more towards a, a, a greater synthesis between sentences that are read and sentences that are spoken? I think so. Yeah. I, and my next book is um, very contemporary, like now. Yeah. And so that sort of really... And it, so it's not... It's not you know dreamy and it's much uh, it's it's not dreamy in the way the end of everything is either. So it's sort of forcing me to um, to 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 write in a different way and just and maybe to sort of merge those more fully because there's it's not as confessional. So there's no there's no sort of justification for it. So I've got to sort of work the sentences differently, which yeah. I think is good. You know, one of the reasons I that I wrote the end of everything is to break myself out of certain ruts. You know, like so, what such as well. I mean, I really would really only write drunken nightclub scenes <laughs> my choice. You yeah, know? there's nothing wrong with that. No, no, and it's such, you know, I mean, it, to me it is, you know, I mean, I would, it, and I realize, you know, I can't, you know, now I have a 13-year-old who lives in the suburbs, I will not be able to have a drunken nightclub scene, yeah, you know. Yeah. And, I, and she will not be able to do any of the things that my other characters do. She can't gamble, she can't, you know, fornicate, I mean, she, you know, she could, I suppose, but she doesn't. Oh, 13-year-olds you know. fornicate, Yeah, me. it's true, it's true. Um, but and fornication is in this book. There is yeah, fornication. Yeah. I guess you, yes, you're right. Where's fornication? It's hard to have a book without fornication. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I find. Yeah. Um, but she, you know, she can't. You know, I mean, or at least she does, and she's not the kind of girl who is, um, you know, getting into the kind of trouble that my other narrators have gotten into. She's sort of an appropriate you know 13 year old suburban girl so it made me have to like I, at first of it, I thought what is she going to do what yeah. does she do you know and so it really sort of jostled me out of the 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 um, I don't want to say rut but the sort of groove the easy groove I was in you know what new possibilities do you think were discovered 
through the use of a 13-year-old girl instead of a uh, tough as nails, uh, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and bury the body yeah, type of yeah, thing. Yeah. Well, it was funny because, um, because she's, um, you know, it's sort of the double thing, you know, where you so when you read it and when you write it you're aware of the mistakes she's made the sort of misunderstandings she yeah. has and that was interesting to do i mean you're sort of aware of that in my more noirish books because you realize that they're going down a bad path and they cannot stop themselves but in the case of the elizzie and the end of everything um it seemed it felt more personal like we all know what that's like when you're 13 and you think you understand things and you understand nothing but you uh, but you also ex can to many ways appear that you understand things so therefore people react to you as if you do and it's sort of this sort of treacherous dangerous spot so I'd never written that kind of place before on the other hand you just referred to your other books as your more noirish novels yeah. I should point out that I was alarmed to see the police show up much earlier than expected. <laughs> Normally you have the police show up at the very, very end, and yet yeah. here it was like, whoa, well, the police are there all along. Yeah. Is this um, one of the inevitabilities, I suppose, of writing uh, about crime? <laughs> or is this something that perhaps comes from a perspective or, in this case, a missing girl. Well, I think that was interesting. My my brother's a prosecutor. Yeah. One of the kernels of this book was he, he's sort of in a in, in you know Michigan. Um, it's um, Macomb County, you know, which is famous for arresting Eminem, yeah. <laughs> um, which is quite a claim to fame. But it, he always talked to me about how when he you know he's a big crime fiction reader. He always sort of talked about how frustrated it was. He didn't people didn't always understand how hard it was to find somebody, yeah. even a little girl in a small community, and that people have this sense. And you know this book is set pre Amber Alert, but even now he said that somehow that the resources can be marshaled and that everybody's on the lookout and that no car can go unfound. And he said. It's not that way at all, you yeah. know, and it, it's such a mystical process. And I and I wanted to do a version of that where the the cops are not, you know, we don't have quite access to them, but they're not closing in. They don't really know. They're trying to do everything they can, but they're sort of this sort of helpless third party in the book in many ways. And that all the sort of action towards the resolution of the of the disappearance is driven instead in, in a completely different corridor, which is the, the well, narrator. On the subject of bringing the police in, I mean, it, it's interesting that you always have in the past tended to postpone the police because what you're dealing with are characters who are trying to come to terms with their crimes or their perceived crimes, or in the case of Bury Me Deep, a series of consequences that leads to an alleged yeah. crime where right. you're kind of fucked no matter yeah. what. Yeah. So, so it, it is interesting that the, the role of the police here enters much earlier right. and, uh, and considerably swifter because, uh, because it, you know, it's, it's not so much about what the law has to say. It's more about how these characters come to terms with actions. Right, right, yeah. And it was, it was funny because, you know, in this book, too, the narrator is, is you know, the police are not exactly her friend and yeah. for certain reasons in the story. And, it's, and she has a complicated relationship to them that sort of felt like the through line in all my books, you know, yeah. the, the, the police uh, that, because it's sort of, you know, in the, uh, all my books essentially are about shame or guilt, yeah. you know, or Have you no guilt. shame? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so cool. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that, you know, everybody always seems to feel guilty in yeah. all of them. So the police are sort of always occupy this strange presence. Yes. You know? Well, I also wanted to ask about the end of everything. A phrase, by the way, that 
I found several times in Die a Little, by the way. <laughs> yes. um, that was one of my original yeah, it's like, titles it's like for you, that. It's like all of a sudden, okay, so the end of everything is the new launching point after the last four or something. It's yeah. like I have to tie that in. But, <laughs> yeah. but the book is very concerned, I think, with these very concrete descriptions of childhood. The folded paper game Flame. Yeah. Um, I'm more familiar with MASH. I'm not sure if you played that on the channel. No, chocolate. is it the same idea? Uh, same idea, okay. like mansion, apartment, shack, house. You do this, like, yeah, it's a similar thing. That's great. Um, the notion of the two girls being body close, the window into the teen boy world. These are all very specific, memorable, tangible moments in childhood. Yet, the novel's last 100 pages, pretty much the tilting point after the Pete Shaw situation. Right. And I'm trying yes. my best not to give it right. away. Um, the book starts to steer away from this foundation. Right. Um, similarly, the twists in Bury Me Deep and Queen Pin they are predicated not so much on the events taking a tilt, but more on the tone taking a tilt. Something permanently alters. What do you do in the early writing stages to maintain this balance? Are you thinking all this stuff out well in advance? Or is there, a, I suppose, a disadvantage in this blinkered perspective you were mentioning earlier? Because, you know, I suppose if I were in your shoes with such colorful characters, I'd be like, oh my god, I, I have to write this now. No, I can't. Right, um, right. Do you jump around various points in the books? What do you do to contain this? I don't. I definitely stay in order. I have to stay in order. But I always have sort of a general arc. And frequently yeah. I'll write the last scene um, long before the end. But I won't do anything leading up. So I have an end point. Yeah, I need to reach that spot. Yeah. And in this is an interesting case because this book, uh, I wrote the last scene about 12 years ago when I thought I would write this book and I had no idea what to write but I wrote about 20 pages and the last scene Wow! and that last scene stayed in there because um, I always and I did but I didn't really know what it was do I didn't know the purpose of the scene at the time. Yeah. I just knew I wanted to be the end because I always and this is true I think with all my books I know the point I want the character to be at, at the end and that's yeah. the part I'm working toward and in the end of everything um, you know, there's there's sort of these series of revelations, and you and she's uh, Lizzie sort of grow grows up. I sound like an after school special, and then Lizzie grew up. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> when you think with missing girls, there's often that conversation. Yeah, that's right. It's true. <laughs> but it's but true. no, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so I knew that there was going to be a point, you know, that I had to get for her, and so I guess the character arc forms the plot arc for me, and then then it's a sort of point about getting them to that place they need to be at the end. Huh. So. So maybe some of these details I mentioned earlier were very much about building that foundation to find the bridge to the end. Yes, I yeah. think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do, um, the sort of flood of atmospheric detail, I feel like I can get away with at the beginning and, and sort of to drop someone into that world. But then I then I sort of need to, then I feel like, then the events sort of have to carry it away. Like, hap like happens in life. Yes, know? exactly. Yeah. Well, your last two novels have adopted... This more these more introspective methods to get at what's troubling your characters to get at that tilt. Um, the ghosts that torment Marion at the end of Bury Me Deep. I mean, reminded me very much of William Kennedy's Ironweed and what Francis was dealing with with all the ghosts haunting him. Um, and without giving anything away, yeah. the end of everything features any number of lies, illusions, prevarications that Lizzie cleaves to in order to come to grips with this. It's very interesting to me that you mentioned that those 20 pages actually were written 12 yeah. years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, at the risk of now calling this a new direction, um, does this new direction towards the psychoanalytical spring from any ongoing research you've done in the psychoanalysis or perhaps 
steering away from, I suppose, the crime novel peg and more into something akin to what William Kennedy was doing with Iron right. Man. Yeah, oh, I'm a huge William Kennedy fan. I have right a feeling. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, um, I think partially it was moving towards... Um, towards the present and towards a time and place I know yeah. sort of made them more more personal I guess um, and I you know I'm sort of obsessed with psychoanalysis in, in general and especially Freud and and um, and there's sort of the, uh, that's that's part of my dissection approach you know I uh-huh. loved it you know but so I think somehow in the and bury me deep as well as the end of everything that um, you know, they're sort of bringing me closer, I guess, to, to um, away from, um, away from just inf- literary influence, maybe, yeah. and more and more personal in some way. Um, so, you know, you, first few books were such riffs off writers I, I loved, and that, and that's always going to be there. But now it's sort of like I'm drawing from other places too. You know, sure. Um, you know, the dark swarm or something. Yeah. You know. So something like Freud or psychoanalysis is really a method for you to, I suppose, keep the judgmental part in the books without actually having it encroach upon the organic behavior. Something oh, like that. Yeah, if yeah. If you have some sort of like, I suppose, societal codex or some. Uh, I, you know, prescribed behavioral situation competing with the behavior itself. It's a way for you to get in there with your deconstruction impulse without actually violating the need for these characters to breathe. Yeah, no, that that sounds absolutely right. I, I was thinking, you know, because there's this, there's some elements in this book where. Um, you know, there's always in Freud, there's sort of locked boxes and yeah. closed boxes and things yeah. that one has to, you know, you put your hand in or peer into and all that. Sounds very Jungian, you know, too. <laughs> totally. And yeah, I've also been reading him a lot. Yeah. And that sort of dreamscape quality. And, 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 I, and I love, you know, when you read things in a Freudian lens, you're always looking for those. And you're always looking for characters who, um, un, you know, unco- unconsciously want to get caught or want to be exposed or that, you know. And so that, that which always works with a crime novel, too. Yeah. And so somehow, the yeah, that sort of fascination. Um, and, and I guess, you know, the family romance has always fascinated me, you know. So that, too. Or maybe it's a way for you to carry on what I think is an abandoned legacy, that alignment between psychoanalysis and the noir novel. Yes, yes, they belong together. I don't know how you can have one without the other, even though, you know, people will claim it, I'm sure. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Missing girl novels are really interesting to me because you have people like Sturdonan and and Alice Siebold who have written these missing girl novels, and yet they don't have to face the dilemma of being pegged a crime novelist or a mystery novelist or a noir novelist. Um, why do you think Onan and Siebold are able to get away with this and you aren't? Right. I mean, obviously yeah. you've written noir, but right. but you know what of what of this? I mean, yeah. you know, I I mean, I was trying to think to myself, well, can you really call her books? mystery novels or crime novels I, I was I was talking with, with people about this and yeah. I and I said you know really it doesn't matter it should just, it's fiction and fiction should work so so how do you deal with something like this yeah I'm always so mystified by that too because I think you know I mean I, yeah I mean talking about lovely bones and people don't maybe yeah. maybe call it the missing girl novel but they're certainly not calling it a crime novel and I, yeah. I, I, and I it sort of stupefies me and, and all those sort of designations do um, 
because stories are, sto- you know, yeah. stories are stories, you sure. know. Um, and I don't know. I mean, the, especially missing people stories seem to go across. They're really about identity. They're really about all these sort of yeah. big issues that in many ways all novels are really about, you yeah. know, the missing or the gone or the, um, and, and how we sort of attach those labels. On the other hand, as a lover of crime novels, yeah. you know, I, I feel okay with that, too. You know, it doesn't bother me. But I guess there's this fear. There's this fear I always have in this case, you know. People say, will say this about crime novels, and they won't say it about literary novels. But they should. Which is, oh, no, not another missing kid book. Or, oh, no, not another heist novel. Or another P.I. novel. And, that, and that's just because they've read some that don't sing for them, you know. and and But I think that, that literary fiction you get away with that more I mean yeah. someone perhaps should say not another novel about a crumbling east, Upper East Side marriage but yeah. nobody seems to you know yeah. or they might say you know I mean I think you sort of everyone would say that because they thought that's the stuff of life well you know crime is the stuff of life too or, or not a, not another novel about a middle aged man going through a crisis and, that's uh, the one know, I was trying to think of anyone involved I mean, with a younger woman yes who, oh <laughs> yeah. even worse yeah, yes yeah. I know how I mean yeah, yeah. Yeah, why don't we peg those as genre yeah. and the crime novels, which have yes. a little bit more variety than that? Yeah, we'll call it the Roth genre. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe the solution here is to really just win them over with prose. If you have original enough prose, do you think that you can escape the label that other people, or maybe? there's a certain advantage in being locked with that label because you don't have to deal with the bullshit. Right, you know, I think that. No, yeah. I mean, I guess the sort of dream is that you would have a book that would work in both ways, you know. And that's one of the things that, you know, I I, I struggle with plot. It's not my natural thing, but yeah. I love plot as a reader. And and one of the, and I'm a big literary fiction reader, but often the trouble I have with them is the absence of a plot. Um, and um, which, you know, it, it just seems like the ideal situation are those books. And I think The Seabold is one of those where you're able to merge the sort of the, the strength of a genre book's plot yeah. with all the sort of you know originality innovation that you can get away with more in literary fiction than yeah. you could in a crime novel. Though I think you can. I think crime, most crime readers are totally open to have, you know, because they read so much yeah. and they are, you know, obviously... You know, they don't care that much about plot or they wouldn't be reading The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Sure, so. sure, sure. But we're also seeing literary fiction cannibalizing more from the genre, yeah. I think, in the last, like, five, oh, ten years. Yeah. I mean, Colson Whitehead has his new book. It's a zombie book. I didn't you know? hear yeah. that. Why oh, isn't that yeah. categorized in the science fiction oh, section? Oh, yeah. You know? Well, no, well, Richard Price is, you know, I mean, yeah. these, you know, and, I mean, it's, it's uh, some... It's somewhat puzzling. And who's the who's the new one who's doing it? Um, I, there's another one. I've been keep hearing of all these literary authors writing their crime novel. And yes. And I mean, I don't. I'm sure they're doing it for a variety of reasons. Yeah, yeah. And I I don't blame them for doing it. The frustration sometimes is the reception they get, which is you know. Um, you they know, get a free pass they, because yeah. they're the literary person dipping yeah. into a genre. Yeah. They will never and man. you, by yeah. way of being the experienced genre novelist, get more criticism. Is, right, Do you exactly. feel this is what the situation is with you? Or? I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess we'll see. I mean, I, I feel like my books are all sort of part of the same world. And I think, you know, a lot of these sort of turns are, are sort of imposed by on the outside you know yeah. of course then marketplace you know, situation yeah, yeah right so I mean I think that's okay I mean my my greatest frustration is the sort of John Banville thing where it takes him you know three days to write a paragraph under his name but he, when he writes under Benjamin yeah. Black it takes him five minutes to write you yeah, know and yeah. I, like that kind of dismissal of, of, of genre you know is the sort well of, I mean 
I, I don't think he really means to dismiss genre because right. if you're spending five minutes what normally takes you three days to write, of course it's going to seem easy. Of course yes. you're going to sort of sneer down on it. Yes. Even though he's also having a lot of fun. He's also said that. Yes. Even though he's also come out and said, oh, I love Donald Westlake and yes. Richard Stark novels right. you must read. Yes, yes. Well, I, and, I, and I think that's the place I, that I'm excited about when it sort of comes from love. When you can feel yeah. the authors love it. When they're not being arch. You know, a lot of people gave Martin Amos a hard time when he yeah. wrote The Night Train. Which I thought was great yeah. because it, you could tell he was not being pastiche or or, or arch. No or, ambitions uh, whatsoever. Yeah, he just yeah. wanted to write a mystery exactly. novel. Exactly, yeah. and it and it's beautiful. And he didn't yeah. sort of hold back with his pro. You know, he yeah. did exactly what he wanted to do. And I think you know when books that come from a place of love yes. <laughs> are always always work. You know? Yeah, yeah. I almost feel that Paul Oster also has faced that problem too because essentially. He's writing very ornate mystery novels to some degree. Yeah, right. yeah. No, exactly. And you think of sort of Elroy and DeLillo. How yeah. are they that different? You know, yeah, and you know, yeah. but you know, I think it. You know, they're both. You know, they're both kind of confronting the major events of the, of the 20th century. Right. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, you mentioned fornication earlier, and I have to mention fornication in relation to your work. Um, I have asked John Updike about his use of external sexual imagery. Yeah, I have asked yeah. Lionel Shriver about the behavioral inferences one draws from sexual positions. Now I have to ask you about something very interesting in the song is you mm-hmm. there's one moment where a woman's head is banging against a bathtub faucet oh yeah um, and in this book you have uh, an, an observation of Dr. Aiken and the mother yeah. uh, not facing each other and Lizzie having an issue with this right. what's interesting in both of these cases is that you have a judgment based off of sexual position, which comes from either confessing it to somebody or observing it. Right. Um, you have had really terrible sex in your books, yeah. like you know, abuse and the like. Right. But I, I, I was curious about about this because it says a lot about what these characters are, um, and it also serves as an interesting counterpoint to the rather darker sex that is in your books. And I'm wondering um, if you could talk about this, how such, uh, such, I suppose. Um, Maybe this goes back to my question about repeating certain elements right. too. Yeah. Uh, you know how you have this counterpoint, how this was devised. Um, I guess that's a good question. Um, a lot of it, it was a sort of that, that example in the song is you. Is it's it's a it's a related story. Yes. It's a woman relating the story, and she's it's this weird thing where she's trying to uh, tantalize the person she's telling the story to, and. And so she wants to put this image in his head. And then yeah. sometimes in books, that's directly what I'm doing. I'm doing the thing she's yeah, doing. Yeah. Where I want to sort of have this extremely vivid, maybe odd image, you know, yeah. because it sort of hooks in somehow. Um, as opposed to the, and I guess this links to, as I say, when there's actually sort of, let's call it a positive fornication yeah, yeah. experience, where um, I, I don't think my scenes are particularly... They're not graphic. They they're graphic in a certain way, but I don't give. I don't use body parts or things like that. Yeah. But I try to focus on a sort of um, a, almost a voyeuristic detail yeah. of it often. And I, I think that's you know they, that writers are all voyeurs, and maybe this goes back to Freud. But there's this some sense of we're all peering in. We're all trying to sort of peer in and understand um, the the sort of dark continent of of sexuality. So I so to sort of 
I sort of want to, you know, give it an odd tilt or something yeah. and sort of make it sort of uncanny, a little off. But it's more than an odd tilt. You yeah. are actually peering into how these characters judge each other yes. in a way that non-sexual moments does not. Right. Yes, yes. And judging themselves, I yeah. guess. You know, there's an episode, there's another, I guess one of the more explicit sexual episodes in the book, and there's it's sort of rendered non-judgmentally, but... Yeah. Um, um, but it, the judgment, see, the judgment is very. Our judgment in reading is very complicated. I mean, yeah. I don't think we judge it, but we sort of, it sort of stirs us up inevitably. And I think, um, yeah, there is a sense. Maybe this goes back to the shame and guilt thing. You know, there's always seems to be an element there that um, whatever kind of sex is going on, whoever is doing it under whatever circumstances, however much they're enjoying or not. It's a little bit taboo, you yeah. know. Every there is no sort of safe or, or yeah. healthy sex, even when it would appear to be, you know. Or we don't want to discuss how we're judging people in terms of how they're having sex yeah. or who they're sleeping with right. and the like. I mean, it's, it's one of the great things that we don't want to confess. It's yes, like, right, you know, exactly. Like, what's what's he doing with her? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Exactly. Right, exactly. Yeah. You went like through the keyhole, and then we keep <laughs> yes. our judge, judgment to ourselves, or, yeah, uh, yeah. but we render it to the the narrator renders it to the reader yeah. quite heavily. Or, or we're judging someone in a motel room bagging away. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, then they walk out and immediately we have a totally different viewpoint of them, even though we all do this. Yes, yeah. right, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, for someone like Lizzie, the fantasy is so much better. Yeah. And one of the things about being 13 is your your ideas about, about sex are so, um, you know... So glorious, yeah. or and terrified, and being um, formed but, too, yeah, yeah, and yeah. always, yeah, always under creation, yeah. and I, and that you know, living in the suburbs, especially at that time, you know, where you had, I mean, you always experience intimacy of others through a screen door, through a window, yeah. through hearing something two houses away, and so it, to me, that's sort of my memory of it as a kid, as always, or finding, you know, my friend's brother's, you know, playboys under his mattress, yes. and that kind of The thing. hustlers in this. Yes, that's and, right. That's and the association with Peach, which is very interesting. Yes. <laughs> Twice yeah. in the book. I yes. know. Yeah. What, what's I up know. with the Peach? I mean, I don't yeah, understand I the covers, but, yeah, yeah. but then all pornography of this is associated with yeah. That is a specific Megan memory of <laughs> finding uh, yeah. my uh, my best friend's brother. He had, and I, I don't I don't know if it was Playboy or Hustler. Uh, I think I upped the stakes to Hustler for the book, but I, <laughs> but it, I remember I had never seen a women, women's bodies, yeah. and it, whatever the picture was, it w looked. That's what it reminded me of, of like yeah. a big summer peach or several summer, you know. And I just remember being. It was the first time I'd sort of seen a woman's body from the out as a as maybe I, I realized a man would yeah, see it yeah. and it was so striking and I never forgot it so I think it just sort of yeah, it keeps like uh, yeah. re-emerging <laughs> I had a similar situation seeing like you know my mother had a roommate who had Playgirl there and mm -hmm. I had a I mean, no, probably not as intense as this, yeah. but it was also very curious to, yeah. whoa, I didn't realize that men could be objectified. Yeah, right, <laughs> you know exactly. what I mean? And, or anybody yeah. for that matter. Right, yeah. right, yeah. And that this is this is what the, this is an object of desire. This is what stimulates, yeah. you know. And that was sort of, uh, um, you know, at that age, you know, teenage boys are particularly scary, yeah. you know, whereas the older men are not so yeah. much, when, yeah. you know, though perhaps they should be, you know. Um, but, you know, just sort of have that window into this is what my brother is yes. looking Yes, absolutely. Uh, your novels have always had a very specific concern for often real places. You name check bars and restaurants big time in a way I don't often see uh, with these kinds of books. And it provides this 
really interesting authenticity. Um, I'm curious how much you deliberate over naming a place. I mean, is there a real rabbit park, for example? I have to ask. <laughs> yeah, no, and I deliberate huh. obsessively. Yeah. And I think in um, in my other books, often set, you know, in Los Angeles, you know, and usually I would use real places that had a particular avocation, you know, yeah. um, where I would see pictures of them. For this book, I had to sort of create the associations yeah. because I didn't want to name where it was said. I didn't want to use places from my hometown, for instance, because I didn't want it to be that specific. I yeah, wanted yeah. it to be sort of suburbia everywhere. Sure, sure. So I had this sort of idea that they should be really... Um, I think Rabbit Park was sort of a David Lynch thing. Um, um, I had, He always uses really um, almost like Grimm's fairy tales words to name things yeah. and that was sort of um, I think we originally I think we took the last name out of the final book in my original book Lizzie's last name was Hood like like Little Red Riding Hood and I had this idea that this was really kind of a fairy tale yeah. um, and so I wanted the names to sort of be this plain but kind of iconic at the same time yeah huh, interesting um, I also have to ask since we were on the subject of repetition it's very difficult to read a Megan Abbott novel without encountering one of two things. A kimono or a robe, <laughs> or a forelock that is dripping from the top. Um, oh, yeah. You know, it, it's yeah. like, I, I feel that if I don't have those two moments, <laughs> it's not really a Megan Abbott novel. So, so what of, what of uh, how aware are you of these particular tics? You know, I... I definitely, I don't think I was aware of the kimono, the forelock I know. Yes. Um, and, and now I kind of can't do it anymore, I think, because I, my next book, well, my next book is set very much in the present, and forelock isn't so common anymore. I mean, yeah. even in this one, it was a little bit of a stretch, you know. Yeah. Um, but... But I think to me, forelock and kimono are really movie movie images for me. Somehow, they're sort of there's sort of a movie star picture in my head. And the, you know, women in movies always had these you know kimonos or yes, satin robes, yes, like nothing yes. nobody ever had in real life. I mean, I I don't know anyone who owns even a, a robe like that. But yeah. um, and so for this book, I'd sort of do a suburban version of it. But um, I almost feel like there must be some picture I saw once of a woman in kimono and a man in a forelock, and they're probably in a bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> it may very well be the, the yeah. hustler that that's you right, mentioned. That's yeah, right, exactly. that's right. Well, well, what of this? I mean, how much of your imagery would you say comes from film as opposed to tangible personal experience? Yeah, a lot, especially the first few books, all film, you yeah. know, all film. Um, um, the, all, anything that's even remotely visual came from film. Um, and I think um, even sometimes there's a certain... Um, uh, apartments in, a set of apartments in Los Angeles that appears I think in several of my books sometimes yeah. it's in Phoenix sometimes it's in Los Angeles but there's this vivid memory I have it from the movie In a Lonely Place yes. and it's so evocative in that movie and I, I cannot let go of it always recurs and, yeah. and, uh, and in this book I couldn't use it obviously um, but um, they're, they're sort of, they help me sort of enter the scene somehow and then, then sometimes I can take them out but sometimes I just have to keep them or perhaps it's a strategy to write about a place where you're not physically in. Yes. I, mean, I, I have to ask how much of your descriptions are rooted in walking around a place or, you know, just as you have been dwelling upon the last few pages of this book yeah. for 12 years, right. um, do you need to walk around a particular place and inhabit it and then it kind of crops up later? Or how, yeah. how much of this goes on? Um, for the for most of the first few books, I only saw the places after I'd written the book. Yeah. So 
that was an uncanny experience sure, sure. for Bury Me Deep when I went to Phoenix I'd seen lots of pictures but I actually went to the house uh, the murder house and, and it was it was sort of like you know in the extreme egotism of the writer it's like wait a minute I invented this this couldn't really <laughs> exist you know? yeah. and it was very uncanny for this book since since it, I, I the place I live in, in Queens is a very deep into it looks very much like Gross Point where I grew up. Oh. I don't know if I could have written the book had I not been able to t ride my bike around there at night and it reminded me of so many things I had forgotten um, and, so, and so yeah. Wait, wait a sec, so you had to will your place into resembling the place that you grew yeah, up? Yeah, yeah. So, so there was one room basically that looked more or less like that? I mean, did you hide any details that looked like Queens? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but, but it's sort of, it almost like, uh, when I was riding my bike, I would almost feel like I was, I could ridden my bike back yeah. to Ghost Point somehow. You know, like I was there, like even, like I think I would turn the corner and I would somehow think that I would be on my block, you know, yeah. and I would start to remember things that I had really thought I had forgotten. The houses are not that way. They're, they're sort of, you know, um, any house. But the, the milk shoot is from my house, actually, going up. So there were certain, yeah, so the first time, I guess, it was actually um, drawing from from my own sort of specific, site-specific memories or, yeah. or nostalgic version thereof. Huh. We've talked about fantasy. We've talked about film. We've talked about location masquerading as reality. We've talked about imagination. What of direct transposition from reality? I mean, uh, is... Has this mattered more, I suppose, in the in the more in the later books, or? Yeah, yeah. I was able to. Yeah, I mean, none of. I mean, sadly, none of my previous books that I have very much drawn yeah. in my personal life. Yeah. Well, maybe not so sadly. Why, you know, um, it really wouldn't be good to live in one of those books. But for this one, yeah, there were certain specific things that that were able to make me animate it in ways I was worried I couldn't because I wasn't writing yeah. in the past, which I love, you know. So how am I going to make this? How am I going to interest myself in this? How, how is this going to become the fantasy? And so I was able to, um, I had this really specific memory of one of my friend's fathers when I was a kid um, who was very handsome and very dashing and we all loved him. And um, just a few years ago, I was at this bar in Gross Point, uh, my home, at my home, the Rustic Cabins, famous for Jack Kerouac, he used to hang out there during yeah. the four months he lived there uh, before he fled. Um, and I, um, I was leaving the bar and this man at the bar turned to me and he and he recognized me and he was that father and he was at the bar drinking by himself kind of late at night on Saturday yeah. he still looked really handsome but there was something really sad about him and he remembered me and he remembered um, that he had once awarded me first prize at the slumber party dance contest wow. and I completely remembered that moment I didn't think he would did he have a music trophy <laughs> he did <laughs> but he might as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, yeah, he totally, he totally infused Mr. Verver. It was sort of this idea that, you know, he was. Um, he had been such a um, intoxicating presence when I was a kid, and and then it seemed doubly sad that he was. I mean, probably he just stopped off after work to have. Yeah. A, it, but it was late at night. You know, there was something sad about seeing him there, um, and by himself. And uh, I don't know. And so he's sort of that sort of memory. I think uh, uh, I was able to draw on for the book. You mentioned that something has to interest you in order for it to be included. Yeah. Does that interest always involve some permutation of another form? <laughs> 
um, a permutation of another what? Of another form, whether it be yeah. film or, or reality. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it's not. Sometimes it's a little bit idea. Yeah. Um, the the missing person idea does interest me, and I and the song is you is a missing person case too, and yeah. um, that idea of um, the blank slate, you know, and what we project onto it. So I think that that um, that interests me. That that sort of idea, and I guess always. Um, the unreliable narrator yep. interests me. I yep. guess it interests every writer, and I'm sure it um, um, interests me to a fault sometimes. But that might be the Freudian stuff too, you know. Um, so sometimes it's an idea yeah. um, that hopefully doesn't sort of stay in the in the realm of idea, you know. Be the heavy. I don't. I don't want to write a concept book, but yeah. you know. But yeah. ideas, you know, can can animate me. Okay. Well, on that subject of animation, Megan, thanks so much. It was a pleasure chatting. Thank you so much. Who wants to own that wood wall? I watch only.